The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. Well, as we kicked off our series last week, I shared with you one of my favorite Christmas memories from when I was a kid. And it was when I was five years old and our family went up to a small historic town in Virginia and it, to a house where my pa- where my grandparents were staying and it was a, an old house like over 150 years old and it was the the house that belonged to some distant relative that I had never met before which made it all that much more uh, mysterious and it was filled with all these old antiques and so my my sister and I we just it felt like this was a gigantic mysterious mansion now in reality I've learned in my adulthood it's actually not that big of a house really at all but to us as kids it was this big mysterious mansion and we spent the days uh, around Christmas exploring every part of it and we knew that we would find some kind of secret passages that would lead to some treasures in this mansion and so we searched the whole place and uh, alas we found no secret passage or or no treasures but I think back almost every Christmas to that because one of my favorite Christmases from uh, my childhood and particularly this Christmas because what we're talking about is the the fact that When Jesus was born, we're not just celebrating the birth of a great and famous leader. Like when Jesus was born, that is actually a gift, according to the Bible, a gift to you and to me. And with that gift of Jesus, with Jesus arriving, very real treasures, he brings very real treasure into our lives, not just some kind of like transcendent level, like things more profound, more real, more that we feel the need of them more deeply in our lives than any treasure we could find here on earth. It brings very real things. And so we're exploring a particular part of the Bible that it shows these treasures and it reminds me of, it's like we're, we're searching out in this old mysterious mansion trying to find these treasures. And so that mansion kind of served as the inspiration for our, our series. Not the mansion that actually, but the, that I was actually visited, but the one that it's kind of become in my mind all these years later, a mysterious mansion worth exploring and finding all kinds of treasures. So in order to continue forward with this series, you're going to have to use your imagination. Do you guys think you can do that today? Can you use your imagination? Thank you. Half of you are ready. Half of you are nervous right now. It's going to be okay. Okay. All right. I want you to go with me to this mansion. I want you to imagine that we are in Jesus. Hoping we wouldn't have the harp uh, this time, but we're stuck with the harp again. My apologies. I think the harp got worse actually, so we're sorry. Anyway, I want you to imagine that you are with me in a large, mysterious mansion. We are going to start here in the library, and um, we're, we're, there's a lot of things that we've got to look up and study here in the library, um, so that's why we're going to start here. And uh, we talked last week, there's this one song, it's one of the most famous Christmas songs, and the lyrics are lifted right out of an ancient scripture in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah. So let me just flip over to that book. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, go ahead and open to the book of Isaiah. We're going to go to chapter 9. And um, let me just read to you what this says in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. It says this, For to us 
a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Famous words. They are sung in the historic uh, piece that's often for centuries been, been sung at Christmas time called the Messiah. In fact, that has been, um, that's been performed even in our city, even to, to modern times, those famous words promising that a son has been born, a child has been given. And of course, it's talking about uh, Jesus Christ born in the manger. But I want you to see this text it's that every time this Christmas that you see Jesus, baby Jesus, depicted in a manger, maybe on a Christmas card, maybe on a, a decoration for the tree or in a house or a lawn ornament even, a little nativity decoration, every time you see that baby depicted in the manger, remember what this text says. It says that that child has been born to you. He has been given. Jesus is a gift to each of us. It says he's been born, and it says the government shall be upon his shoulder. This child is a ruler. He's going to lead a kingdom. He's a king. He's a, a, a child is born, a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders. And then it says, well, how is he a gift? Like in what way does this child bring with him treasures? And it gives us a clue, it gives us a hint when we look through these names, like titles that are layered on a, a king, a monarch, it lists his names, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And last week we talked about how this child who would be born would be a wonder of a ruler, a wonder of a counselor. And this week we're going to look at the fact that he's referred to as the Mighty God. What does he mean as a mighty God? This is not the only thing that uh, Isaiah 9 uh, mentions. I want you to look up a few verses earlier. We're going to take a look at verse 4. Look at how it describes this one who would come. Here's what it says, Isaiah 9, 4. For the yoke of his burden, his being God's people, the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder the rod of his oppressor. You, that's the one who's to come. You have broken as on the day of Midian. He says this one that's to come, he's going to do some things. He's going to break, he's going to break this yoke, break this rod, break this staff. That's one of the things he's going to do. So what does he mean by yoke? Let's get an idea. It's good we're here in the library. Let me just grab, this is a, a dictionary of uh, the life of in, in ancient biblical times. Let me read to you. This is what a yoke is. The wooden yoke used by the Israelites hardly differs from the uh, present Palestinian yoke formed of a traverse bar with long pins fixed vertically for enclosing the neck of the ox, mule, or horse which bore it. Okay, well, what does that mean? You can see a depiction of a yoke. It is a wooden cross beam that goes across the necks of maybe oxen or uh, donkeys or horses and that kind of encloses them. It's fixed 
to ensure that they both go in the same direction. And then they would attach to that yoke a, a chain or a rope that would pull. It could be a plow. It could be a cart. It could be something along those lines. And the, the fact that it is a fixed wooden yoke means that these two oxen will pull or they will learn to pull in the same direction. Now, of course, the animals have no say in what they're pulling or how much weight they're pulling what's in the cart, but they would be driven by someone driving them forward, carrying that weight. So this has been a very common tool in ancient times. Almost everyone probably um, in this very agricultural community would have either had one, purchased one, maybe they'd made their own. So they, very, they have a very close relationship with this tool. They would know what it was like when they put a brand new yoke that hadn't been worn, um, worn in yet by an animal, when they put a brand new yoke on an animal. They would know like how, to, how they had maybe like kind of shaved in, uh, the inside so that it wouldn't rub uh, that animal raw. Or maybe they knew what it was like the first time they put a, a younger animal in a yoke. Or when two animals are trying to learn how to go in the yoke together and they're kind of pulling against each other. Or when one doesn't have the, the calluses yet on the neck and it's kind of rubbing that part of their neck raw. They would have a very close relationship with this yoke. And so because of that, the, this yoke was used as a metaphor for various things. One thing it was used for is the teachings of a rabbi. So it was used as a metaphor for coming under the yoke of a rabbi. The rabbi is giving you teachings in the Old Testament context, giving you laws and interpreting the laws of Moses. Some were really strict. Some were not as strict. So some, if you went under the, the yoke of some rabbis, it felt like you had a heavy burden to bear. Some you had a lesser burden to bear, but you would come under the yoke and the teaching, the guidance, the leadership of a rabbi. You follow me? Okay. This metaphor is different. It's using the yoke to describe oppression. It's saying that there's a yoke of oppression on these people. And in the, the times that Isaiah is writing, it is the Assyrians. The Assyrians have put a yoke on them. Imagine, it's a great metaphor for that. They have had this um, proverbial yoke put around them. They're carrying a burden. Maybe it's a, the burden of a tax, a tribute, that they have no say over the weight of that burden. But they have to, they're driven. They have no say where they're going. They're driven by oppressors. It is a symbol. This yoke is a symbol of oppression that God's people are under. But this child who will be born will break the yoke of oppression, will break the rod and the staff. Think rod like a scepter. Think staff like a shepherd's staff that's driving the herd of sheep in one direction, keeping them in one direction. There's an oppressor that's driving God's people and he'll break down that staff. He'll break that rod. He'll break the yoke and free them from oppression. Powerful, vivid imagery. But it says how he will break that yoke. It says very specific. It's calling back to a situation that happened many generations before. He says he will break the yoke of oppression as he did in the days of Midian. 
Now this passage is just saturated with imagery. There's lots to explore here in just a couple verses. But this situation in, in Midian takes us all the way back in Israel's history before the time of the kings and the time that we now know as the time of the judges. And there was this nation, the Midianites. And here's what they would do. Every year at harvest time, they were kind of a nomadic people. They would move in by the tens of thousands and they would settle right in the middle of Israel. And they would then steal all the crops and, and from their herds. And they would just ravage that area. They were described like a massive um, uh, horde, a, a massive um, uh, hive of locusts sweeping through. Like imagine if you're uh, a farmer and you've been working the soil and you've been growing your crops. And then right as harvest time comes, you see a swarm of locusts by the billions just descend on your crops and just devour your crops, leaving just empty stalks there. That's what Midian would do. They knew just the time that they would harvest. And so year one, they come in and they settle by the tens of thousands, Israel powerless to stop them. And they would just ravage through all of the crops, stealing them for themselves. And then they would leave at the end of harvest, leaving Israel just decimated. They had no food, their economy absolutely crushed, trying to barely survive until the next harvest. Then the next harvest comes around, year two. Midian comes back again, settles into the dread of Israel. And once again, just ravaged through Israel, stealing all their crops and herds. Then it happened on year three, then year four, then year five, then year six, then year seven. Israel's desperate and they cry out to God. And so God says, I will come and deliver them. So here's what he did. He found the least of the least, a man by the name of Gideon. Gideon was from the weakest family of the weakest clan, and he was probably the weakest in his family. I mean, it was like if you found like the, the most terrified weakling in all of Israel, God's like, he's the guy I'm going to use. He had no courage. He fought God the entire time. He didn't want to do it, but God said, I'm going to use you. But I've picked you, Gideon, in your weakness because I want Israel to learn a lesson. I will be the one to save them. So to Gideon's surprise, 30,000 Israelite soldiers surfaced and came around Gideon to follow Gideon. Gideon was probably as confused as anyone. Like, why are you here? I don't even want to be here. And they gather around, no, you're going to lead us. And so they, they look, and yet they were still outnumbered five to one. Even though they had over 30,000 warriors, they're outnumbered five to one. And so God says, um, but you know what? There's too many. So Gideon, I want you to go before the entire army and say, hey, anyone who's just scared, go home. So they're like, are you serious? It's like, yeah, just go home. That's what God said. So 20,000, 22,000 of them like, well, I'm scared. So they all go home. There's 10,000 left. Gideon's like, this is probably not a good plan. But God said, no, still too many. So he had this whole thing down at the stream where Gideon was to watch and at some just drank by just putting their face down to the stream. Others kind of lifted up the water with, with cupping their hands and, he, and, he, and whichever one did one way or the other, some he sent home and some he kept and he had whittled it down to Gideon and 300 warriors. And God said, okay, that sounds about right. 
you were outnumbered five to one, but now I've got you outnumbered 450 to one. And so he said, I'm going to use that and I want you to see because here's why. Here's why I thinned out the army. I wanted to be very clear to Israel. They did not save them by their own hand. Now to imagine how this played out, it's helpful if you have a, a map. So I want you to check out uh, this map of the area where this, where this took place. Um, I want you to look at the, um, the far left part where you see the Mediterranean Sea. And I want you to look at that coast and I want you to start at the northern part and start working your way down. And there's one part, a little over halfway down that kind of juts out dramatically. And you might not be able to read that right there, but that's Mount Carmel. That's where Mount Carmel is. And to get an idea, this is not a very large area. I mean, just from Mount Carmel, then to go straight across to where the Sea of Galilee is, that, that looks like a lake right there in the middle, that's only like 45 miles. I mean, that'd be like driving here to the beach and back, or it'd be like driving from Miami up to Boca. Like, that's not a far area. But I want you to start at Mount Carmel, that part that juts out, and you'll see there's a tiny little river that kind of weaves its way down, and it's actually upside down, so you can't read it from this angle, but it says Jezreel Valley, that valley, and as you work its way down, right before you get to the Jordan River, it says Jezreel, and below it is Mount Gilboa, and above it is Mount Mora. And it's Gideon was encamped with his 300 on Mount Gilboa, and, and the Midianite horde was up there by Mount Mora. Now, I want, to, I want you to get this scene. From what we put together from the Bible, you've got 300 soldiers from, from Israel, and you've got 135,000 soldiers from Midian, and all of their tents all of their weapons, all of their camels, like it, just a gigantic sea of people. To get that kind of in our brains, uh, let, let, let's look at a large group of people. The largest football stadium in the U.S. is the stadium up at University of Michigan. They call it the Big House. It's the largest football stadium in the U.S. It seats 107,000 people. So you're looking at that sea of people right there, that are all squished in there. They're sitting shoulder to shoulder. They're sitting like on each other's laps. I mean, this is what 107,000 people look like squished together. Now I want you to imagine all of those people leave the stadium and go on a camp out. I want you to imagine they all have their own tents. They all have their armor. They all have their camels. And they're all spread out in a valley. And in fact, this is just 107,000. You'd have to take a Lone Depot stadium where the Marlins play. You have to add that whole stadium as well to get around 135,000. We're talking about a massive group of people spread out that Gideon and his 300 are supposed to be God's instrument to use to defeat. I want you to see this is the actual valley that's described um, in Israel. This is the view from Mount Gilboa over to Mount Mora. This is the, uh, about where Gideon would have been and that mountain right there on the other side of that valley, that is in, in front of that mountain is where this entire massive horde, and I just want you to imagine just spread out across that whole valley, 135,000 soldiers and their tents and their, their camels and their horses and the sound of their armor and the sound of their voices and, and the sound of, of, uh, of their fires and their crackling. And just imagine just this sea of people covering that valley and Gideon and his 300. And God said, I have a plan for you, Gideon. Here's what you're going to do. 
You need just a couple, a couple things. You need a torch, some jars, and have a couple people with trumpets. I'm sure Gideon's like, this does not sound like a good start. You're going to get in three groups. Some of you on this mountain, some of you on that mountain, some of you over here. And when you give the signal, everyone's going to smash the jars, make a huge racket, hoist up these torches suddenly. Some are going to blow the trumpets. There's going to give this mighty war cry. And then I'll do the rest. So they did. They go out, three groups, smash the jars, raise the torches, blow the trumpets, give a cry in the middle of the night and 135,000 in all their tents all of a sudden blasted awake and they're completely confused. They're running around, they're running into each other, they're bumping into each other. Camels start stampeding this way. They don't know who's who. They don't know if that's, is this the enemy? Did they just come in? They start fighting each other and they start cutting each other down. They're killing each other, and they all just get up, and they flee, 135,000 fleeing, and 300 chasing them. And in that day, God was victorious for his people. See, here's what this says. God's, it says one day this one who's coming is going to break the yoke, the staff, the rod. He's going to put an end to oppression, but he's going to do it in the way he did it in the day of Midian. He will do it in such a way where all the odds are stacked against God's people so that when God's people are victorious, the only possible reality is that God did it. Because it doesn't matter what the earthly odds are. If God is on your side, all the power is in your corner. That's what happened in the day of Midian. So when the Messiah will come, when this baby will be born, he will break oppression as in the day of Midian. He will do it in a way that proves it was at the hand of God. But that's not the only thing it says. I want you to go to the next verse. Let's pick it up in verse five because there's more here. It says, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now, what is it describing here? It's a describing an army that is, uh, the, that has marched through a land but has been so defeated that the remains are just burned. There's nothing left to do with them but to burn the remains. And this is a, a very powerful image because there was a mighty army, an empire, in the day Isaiah was writing known as the Assyrians. And they had marched, talk about battle, these boots had marched through. The Assyrians had marched their way through most of the known world conquering. In fact, they would come down through the north. They would conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. And then they, would in, they encamped all around Jerusalem. And they sieged Jerusalem. They besieged Jerusalem. Here's what that means. They surround the city all around the walls. And everyone in the city and the surrounding community comes and locks, locks themselves in the walls. And then the enemies, they just wait 
Sometimes they bring siege weaponry up to the walls and they try and break the walls down, but sometimes they just wait for weeks, months, years. They've cut off their food supply. They've cut off sometimes even their water supply. And it's like they just sit inside the city, slowly starving to death, while the army surrounding them on the outside won't let anyone escape. And they would stand there often doing all kinds of horrible, terrible things to intimidate those inside, to taunt and to break the will and the spirit of those inside. And that's exactly what happened when the Assyrians came in and they were all around Jerusalem. The king at that time was a king named Hezekiah. And when they're all of his people are slowly starting to starve. And the Assyrians who have conquered so many other, other cities, they start to call out so all the inhabitants of Jerusalem can hear, don't trust your king. Your king is not going to be able to save you. No one's king has been able to save them so far. And Hezekiah is just throwing himself down and he calls upon the name of the Lord. And God sends a prophet to encourage Hezekiah. Do you know who he sends him? This guy, Isaiah. And Isaiah goes into the king's chambers and says, I have a word from you. God is not going to let his people be broken. God is going to save the day. And he encourages Hezekiah. But then the Assyrians and the king's name was Sennacherib and he sent his messenger forth. And Sennacherib's messenger calls out to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And he says this, he escalated it to another level. He says this, do not think, this is what Sennacherib has to say to you, Jerusalem. Do not think that your God can even save you. Did the other cities, did their God save them? In the same way, they called out to their God and their gods did not save them. Your God will not be able to save them, will save you. So Isaiah pays another visit to Hezekiah different type of visit. This time he doesn't have a word of encouragement and it's not a word for Hezekiah, but he brings to Hezekiah a word from God about King Sennacherib of Assyria. And he says, do you know who you are mocking? Do you know who you are now coming against? God says, Sennacherib, I will put a hook through your nose and drag you back to where you came from. And the darkness descended that night, and that night the angel of the Lord, one angel, drew sword and went through the camp of Assyria and struck down 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. And they fled back to Assyria, never to come there that way again. And Sennacherib crawling his way into his God's temple. And the moment he did so, he was assassinated by his sons. Why? Because no one can stand against the one true living God. Other cities and other empires may call out to their false gods, but there is one true living God that when you call out to that God, that God is a God of power. Kings and rulers and emperors are, are like pawns in his hand. No one can stand against the might of the living God. In the same way, 
when they woke up that next morning after this word from Isaiah, what did they found? They find, they found just dead bodies. They found the same warriors and they're in their war boots who had marched through so many other lands. All they were to do is now put them on funeral pyres and take the, all of their, those bloody garments from those same warriors who had destroyed so many others and just raise it up in a great fire to the sky. Because God had done the work, just like he did in the days of Midian, just like he did in the days of Isaiah and Hezekiah, God won the battle and no enemy could stand against him. Now here's what Isaiah says in our text, Isaiah 9. It's not just, hey, something you should know about God is that sometimes he rises up and he fights for his people. That's not simply what he's saying. He's saying, that is what the Messiah who is given to you will do. That is part of who he is. He is, the, this child given to you is the mighty God. Now we've got to unpack this phrase, a mighty God. In Hebrew, it's El Gibor. This is one of the names of the Messiah. Now, El, we're more familiar with uh, El in Spanish, which is an article. It, just, it means the. But in Hebrew, that's not what it means. El in Hebrew is one of the names of God. It's actually one of the words translated God. That's like El Shaddai. Or it's also one of the reasons it's in, that is either a prefix or a suffix in so many names. Like Elisha or Elijah or Elkanah or Zerubbabel. It's one of the reasons it's in so many names because those names are worshiping God. So it's God the Gibor. Now this word Gibor is a very specific context and actually, um, it's a military context. And I actually saw in another part of the mansion that we're in, I saw some, some armor and some weaponry that's going to help us understand this phrase, Gibor. So I got to make my way actually to the foyer to go to this other part. I think, um, let me just go back in the secret passageway. I think I can get there through the secret passageway. Let's see if I can get there. Let me get this lantern on. There we go. All right. We're going to try to make our way through here, but you just never know what you're going to find down here. I learned that the hard way last time. All right. Let me see here. All right. I went that way last time. Let's try this way. What's down here? Oh, I'll go down here and see what's here. <laughs> Got to find my way through here. Really, really dark. Whoa! Oh my goodness. That suit of armor scared me to death. I thought it was a person standing there. Can you imagine how creepy that would be to just see this? Did that thing just move? I could have sworn I saw that thing move. Wait. Ah! Get out of here, creepy suit of armor. What are you doing here? My goodness, what kind of things are in this mansion with suits of armor? Oh my goodness, get out of here. Take that! Ah! I taught him a lesson. Oh, I'm getting out of here. Okay, all right. Wow. I am I don't know how many more times I want to go in that corridor. It gets crazier every time. Okay. We're in the foyer, and you'll see that there's some armor 
and um, there's some uh, there's some weapons uh, that we have here, and I want to just talk through some of these weapons because it'll kind of give us an idea. Let's start with this helmet right here. This helmet is a uh, a depiction of the ancient Greek warriors. So think about that era. Of, of armor and weaponry. I mean, you think of the, the Trojans, the Spartans, um, and you can think of, and, and when I think of that era, I immediately think of some of their great warriors. So you th- and we still remember these warriors, their names today, like uh, Achilles and uh, Hector, Ajax, or how about Leonidas and the Battle of Thermopylae? I mean, we think of these incredible warriors that were like champions. They were heroes. It's like when one of those warriors came on the battlefield, it's like single-handedly, like the battle shifted. It like swelled the hearts of those who, those heroes were on their side and, and it gave them strength and it brought dread to the other side. I mean, with this era, you can think of heroes. It's the same with this. So this is a, a gladius sword. This is from the Roman times. And this is what the, the type of sword that a gladiator is, is named for. And you think about those, those warriors, they were famous People would come from all over to watch them fight in the arena. And some of them are their legends still goes to today. Like they were incredible warriors that would win in, in, in single-handed combat. The most famous um, Spartacus actually didn't even fight in the arena. He's known for single-handedly starting a whole rebellion. But you think of some of the, the champions of that era. Or take this. This is a replica of a, a, uh, a British longsword. So you, talk, you think about the, the knights. You think about King Arthur and the round table and these valiant knights that if they entered in the battlefield, all the other foot soldiers, they, they, were, they were lifted up, they were, they were encouraged, they felt courage kind of welling up because these, these knights, these champion warriors were coming in. Or how about this one? This is a claymore. This would be the type of sword like a William Wallace would have used. I mean, these are famous warriors that hundreds, even thousands of years later, we still remember. They're, they're these champions. They're the, in the classic sense of the word, heroes. They were war heroes that changed the course of whole battles, whole wars. They single-handedly at times protected a whole people. This is the, the same sense was thought of throughout antiquity, and there was a Hebrew word for that kind of champion war hero. It's the word gibor. So when this child who's going to be born is called el gibor, mighty God, it's not just a God who has power. It's not saying just omnipotent God. It's not just a a God that's almighty, that has much strength, that unimaginable strength. It's saying God, the hero. It's saying God, the champion. God who rides into battle and is unstoppable and victorious. The God who, when he rides into battle, it's like his people cheer because they know the battle's already won. He's the Gibor. This child that would be born is El Gibor. And that child is a gift to you. See, coming with that child comes a very real treasure in your life. Victory. Let me bring this over to our lives today because there's so many ways that we need victory in our lives. 
You know, one of the ways that he brings victory is um, victory over the oppressor that has oppressed every single human that has ever been born. Death itself. The great oppressor is death. And even though it's so common, it's still something that's feared, something that feels wrong. But when that child was born, he came to do battle against the great enemy of life, the great enemy of humanity. He came to do battle against death itself. And he was crucified on a cross and he died. Wait, does that mean that that, that, that child lost the battle? No, he was going behind enemy lines. He went down into death because on the third day he would rise back up out of death doing something no human had ever done, defeating death itself. And he brings that victory to you. He defeats death. Here's what the scripture says. That final enemy against humanity, death, has been defeated so that all of us who have received the gift of that child, we say, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Because our champion, our hero, went in and fought the battle on our behalf. He brings you victory over death. Is that good news, church? So in your life and my life today, maybe as you're walking through in your life today, maybe... Maybe there's the fear of death on you. Maybe it's that looming mystery out in your life, or maybe there's a health concern that's bringing uh, a fear and dread. So let your courage be stirred up. Your champion defeated death. When you one day close your eyes for the last time, you will be entering into life, more real, vibrant life like you've never even imagined because death has been defeated. Some of us at this time, we're, we're remembering those that we've lost or maybe even have just recently lost. And so this season brings grief. But in the midst of that grief, what we're celebrating in this season is victory over death. And so we know that all those who have gone before in Christ Jesus have victory and we have hope in the midst of our grief that not only will we see them again, that those we've lost are more alive now than they've ever been. We have victory over death. But that's not the only battle he fought. He came to fight sin. When he was dying on the cross, he was taking all guilt and shame and he was paying for our sin. That is a very, that victory over sin is a very real treasure in your life and in my life. Because maybe this week, as you were walking through this week, there's sins in your life. Maybe they're past sins that still hang over you. You still feel guilt and shame. You feel like you're not worthy. You feel like God's mad at you. You feel like people know, you feel the shame on your life of past sins, but he has put away, he's won victory over those past sins and put them away, for, away from you. Maybe there's that besetting sin in your life. There's that continual sin, that sin habit, that sin addiction, that thing in your life. Maybe it's a, a substance abuse or it's, it's the way you spend money or handle your sexuality or handle your body or the way you pursue pleasure or you pursue wealth or you pursue success and you know it's a God in your life, but sin has oppressed you. He wants to set you free and your oppressor, sin, lies to you and says, don't let Jesus take this away from you because you need this. 
Don't let him do that. You need this. And Jesus, the valiant hero that defeats sin, comes riding and storming into your life to cut down sin and break those chains and set you free. We look into our, we look into our lives and so often it's like, yeah, but following Jesus, I'm not sure. It just seems like it's even harder to follow Jesus than it is to, to, to stay in sin. I mean, I like sin. I need sin. I, I think this is best for me. It's, it takes faith to follow Jesus. It takes faith to turn from my sin and to follow Jesus. And so often, you know what happens in history? One, one leader rises up and topples over an oppressive regime only to start oppressing in their place but that is not the way it is with Jesus. He says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, because my burden is light and my yoke is easy. He says, the thief came to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come to give you life and give it abundantly. He breaks the yoke of the oppressor and he sets you free. He brings that victory in your life. You don't have to live in those chains of shame and guilt and addiction and, and habitual sin. You can turn from those sins and call out to God, I need your help. Help me have victory over the sin and watch how he'll come storming into battle with you. But he gives you victory over your enemies in this life. I don't know what enemies you have in your life. Maybe it's someone who's oppressing you, someone who's making your life miserable, someone who's handling you unjustly. Maybe it's a, a, a boss or it's a former company or it's a customer or it's a lawsuit or it's a family member, someone who's making your life, uh, making your life miserable. It's an antagonist, a bully, someone who's constantly in your life. Jesus will give you victory because he says, if God is for you, if the almighty God, if El Gibor is with you, if the God of the days of Midian and the gods of the days of Hezekiah, if he is for you, who could possibly be against you? No weapon formed against you will stand and those who intended evil against you, it will be turned around for good. That is the promise over your life. Can we celebrate that church? That is the promise over your life. I don't know what the enemy is in your life, but there's no place for defeat. There's no place to walk in fear. There's no place to walk as if everything's gonna turn out terribly. No, we have hope stirred up because we know who our Messiah is. So what does this text call us to do? To remember as it reflects on the days of Midian, and we reflect on the days of Hezekiah. Can you be reminded? Those aren't the only two times he did that. Generation after generation, he did that. Go to Exodus 14, when the mightiest army in the world at the time, Pharaoh's army, are storming down against God's helpless people, unarmed with their backs against the Red Sea. And he says to Moses, you will only have to keep silent and watch how I will rise up in victory. And he opens up the Red Sea and lets them walk across it. And then he turns a sea into a weapon and swallows up Pharaoh's army. 
Same thing he did in the days of Jehoshaphat. They just sing praises and God wipes out their enemies. It's the same thing. What's the common thread? Every time God shows up and, and shows that he is fighting our battles, what is the common thread? God's people are calling out to their hero. They're calling out to El Gibor and he invites us to remember who he is. This Messiah is El Gibor. He's God himself who is fighting for us. And if he is fighting for us, us. You have all the strength and might on your side. Let me pray for you. Lord, we come before you and we remember Jesus, that baby, is our hero. He is our mighty God that rises up and rides into battle on our behalf. We remember that and we will not walk in fear for what's happening in our lives, in our children's lives, in, in, the, in the, the life of what's happening in our city or our country or our world. We have no fear. We know who the victor is. And so we will not walk in a spirit of fear, but in a spirit of victory. We thank you for working that victory in our lives. You know, some of you are here today and maybe today you need to receive the gift of that child, receive the gift of that son and maybe you're here and you'd say, look, I have the title Christian. I have some of the activities of a Christian. I go to church or I watch church online. But it's so much more than that. You're invited in to be adopted into a relationship with Almighty God to make Jesus, to accept and receive the gift of Jesus as your Savior and your King. And so some of, some of you have maybe the heritage of Christian or the title of Christian or the activities of Christian, but today is the day to make Jesus your king and to receive Jesus as your savior and find salvation today once and for all. And if that's you, I want to lead you in a prayer. He hears you. So make this your silent prayer to him, just silently right there. Say, Jesus, I accept you as my savior. I make you my king. I know you will fight my battles. And I know that you've defeated even death itself. I turn you, turn away from my sin and I will follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.